And when we talk about the gospel, we're not talking about a philosophy or a way of looking at life or some unique life hacks to help with your marriage or to help with your finances or to help with the way that you view the world. We're talking about the fact that God intervened. God did something. And he changed all of human history by this action, by the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. And Romans chapter 5 is a key point in the book of Romans. This is a, a transition point. This is a point where Paul really starts to rev up his argument and to bring to a climax what has happened to us in the gospel. So we're going to learn in this uh, brief portion, well, it's actually not that brief, but it's dense, in this little portion of Scripture, God's plan for humanity. God's plan for humanity. So I'm going to start in chapter 12 and go to verse 21. You can read along in the Bibles in the pews or in your own Bible, or you can read along uh, on the screens above. This is Romans chapter 5, starting verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses, brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray for our time together. Our Father, we have heard your word. Lord, settle it into our hearts. Help us to internalize this truth. Give us open ears and open hearts to receive what you are speaking to us today. And strengthen us, renew us after a difficult work week, after long hours toiling after all the struggles and trials we faced this past week, give us a word of hope, a word of comfort, and a word of peace. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you could sum up Romans chapter 5 in one sentence, it would be this. Jesus Christ became a man so that all men 
all humankind might be like Christ. Jesus Christ became a man so that all of humanity might be able to be like him. And one of the things that you see in this chapter is a very realistic view of humanity. You you see the word death and condemnation and sin multiple times in this passage. And whenever you see a word repeated, Paul's probably trying to get something clear to us. And it's popular, you know, people say, what's wrong with the world? What's going on? You watch the news, you see TV, you go online, everything. It seems like everything's going crazy. And sometimes we need to step back and realize it's kind of always been crazy. Humanity has always kind of had a lot of major problems. The history of humanity is full of bloodshed. It's full of corruption and greed and oppression and all these kinds of factors in our lives. And one of the things that Christianity does is it gives us the tools to be able not only to cope with the stark reality of the fact that we live in a fallen world, but it allows us to hope in the midst of it. A couple years ago, we had a, we had a little Q&A with some of our college students, and one of the questions that always pops up every time we do something like that is the question of evil. And that's a tough question. I mean, we probably all thought about this. We're just like, man, okay, if God is good... And where was he when this, you know, insert terrible event in human history happened? And it's a real question. But I remember uh, one of my friends that I, that I brought in to answer some questions, he said, well, you know, where was God? Well, what, what was God doing? Was he far off in a cloud somewhere, sealed off from the life that we live? No, God did do something. He came. He came. He actually entered into this world this world of darkness, this world of sin. I mean, we just celebrated Christmas, Christmas just, you know, a few weeks ago. And I remember driving uh, a few years ago at, at, at night past a, a nativity scene. This is up in Pittsburgh. It's cold and snowy. Snow is this white substance that falls from this. Anyway, you get, you get what I'm saying. So we're, we're driving by, and I saw this lit-up house, and there's this little, you know, manger and this nativity scene. It's all lit up, and it's beautiful. And I remember thinking to myself, man, it's like this beautiful, peaceful scene, and around it is total darkness, freezing cold. And it, it reminds us that the incarnation, the enfleshment of God, God, the second person of the Trinity, putting on human flesh, being born in our likeness, he was born into this world, this world of sin, this world that we face daily and the challenges and the struggles and the the perplexing events that happen and the confusing things that come our way. It's this actual world that God entered into. And when God came, he didn't just show up for a week, die, rise again, and ascend into heaven. Now, Jesus Christ was born into this world as a little baby. He grew up. He went to school. He learned the Old Testament He learned a trade, and he worked it for a majority of his life. He spent his days in ministry walking dusty roads with his fishermen friends and having conversations with them and sharing meals in different homes. He lived a very ordinary life. At least more ordinary than maybe we often think. And why did he do that? We focus about the death, on the death of Christ, and we should. What did the death of Christ mean? But what did the life of Christ mean? Why 33 years to be like us? Well, it's because God is after more than just the redemption or the forgiveness of our souls. 
He's after the redemption of everything about us. You could say he's not after our souls, he's after our holes. W-H-O-L-E-S. I think Lance would be proud of that one. (laughs) But he's after the redemption of our entire humanity. He's not just disposing of our bodies, disposing of our minds, and then just after this invisible energy ball inside of us called a soul. We're We're not energy balls inside of meat suits. Your body is part of who you are. Your life, your mind, everything about you, your humanity is part of who you are. And it is that humanity that God seeks to redeem. One of the church fathers, Athanasius, once said, that which is not assumed is not redeemed. That which is not assumed is not redeemed. If Jesus didn't come in a human body, then he couldn't redeem our human bodies. If he didn't come with a human mind, he couldn't redeem our human minds. So the humanity of Christ is, this, is one of the central tenets of Christianity. And maybe for us, one of the hardest things to believe. Maybe we get that Jesus is God. You know, he's kind of floating around and bless you and do this and all that stuff. But we forget that this is a real, he was a real human. He was like us, yet without sin. So our redemption is not the erasing of our humanity, as if becoming a Christian is detaching yourself from everything that makes you a person. It's the redemption of our humanity, a taking up of it out of the pit of sin into glory. So Christ wants us to be like him, and what was he? He was a glorified human being. He was a true son of God. He is the prototype of what a human being is supposed to be like. Obedient to God, delighting in God, walking with the Father. So I want to look at the healing of our humanity under, the, the, uh, under three words. Three, three words to understand this chapter. Curse, gift, and glory. Curse, gift, and glory. So I want to look at the first word, curse. One of the things that we see, starting in verse 12 is an explanation about sort of the mechanics of why we are in the situation that we're in. Why is the world fallen? Why, why do we experience difficulties in marriages or difficulties with children or family dysfunction or dysfunction in the workplace? Or why, why are so many things seemingly so meaningless and our work feels futile? Why, why do we struggle with this? And Paul sketches out in painful detail why we live in a fallen world. One man, Adam, sinned, and Adam's sin brings about God's promised judgment of death, not only upon Adam, but upon all of creation. So if you rewind all the way back to Genesis chapters 1 through 3, God makes Adam, he tells him, you can have a garden full of yeses, eat of any of the trees, and just one no. Don't eat from one tree. You can enjoy marriage. You can enjoy having children. You can enjoy working. You can enjoy life with me. You can enjoy all the things that I've blessed you with in creation. Just don't do one thing. Because if you do that one thing, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And God is always faithful to his word. Sure enough, Adam And Eve sin, they take of the fruit of the tree, they disobey God's command, and that brings about 
God's promised judgment. It brings about death into the world. And death isn't just physical death. And we know this because when Adam eats of the fruit, he doesn't drop dead. In fact, he lives for a couple hundred years. So death is more expansive than just the physical cessation of life. Death is a state of being. You can be alive and be in a state of death. Death is a spiritual state where you are cut off from the favor of God. You are cut off from God under his curse, under his judgment, and bent towards sin. That's the state of death. And we see God's blessing of work becomes tainted with death. Adam, you're going to work the ground, and you're going to be buried in that ground. The blessing of marriage is tainted with hostility. The woman will try to rule over the man, and the the man will try to lord over the woman. Childbearing will be filled with pain and sorrow. And these are three huge parts of our lives. Our families, our work, our relationships, all of them bent by death. And even creation itself, that's what Romans 8 talks about, is chained to corruption and decay. This actual world is groaning. And this is what Paul is speaking about when he says that through one man came death and death reigns over all. Death will reign over humanity. That death has reigned over humanity from Adam to Moses, and death continues undefeated against humanity until this very day. And he mentions Adam and Moses because between Adam and Moses, God hadn't written down his law. This is before the founding of Israel, before he gave the Ten Commandments. And he says, Isn't that interesting that even though there's no written law, People are still dying. People are still experiencing the penalty of sin. What does this mean? That there's still a moral law in force even though it's not written down. Because people throughout history have been dying. And it's a constant reminder that things aren't okay. That it's not normal that death shatters every bond of love. It's not normal that one day someone's there and then they're gone. And you're left with that void. It's not normal that all of our best laid plans can be shattered in a moment. And that striving after wisdom and pleasure and knowledge and all these good things all bump up into the harsh, unforgiving reality of our mortality. We didn't sin the same way as Adam did. That's why he says people died even though they didn't sin in the way of Adam. But we die because all of us sin like Adam. That when Adam sinned, He cursed the rest of his descendants. So we are all born under Adam, and we're born with a sinful nature. We're born with an anti-God bias. We're born with a love of sin. We're born under the domination of sin and death. We bear a family resemblance to our earthly father. And this is, oddly enough, this is a unifying factor in all of humanity. We're all born in Adam. And that, that's hard for us to believe because we, we kind of view ourselves as radical individualists. We think, I determine who I am. But every one of us has a name we didn't choose. 
Every one of us has a body and a gender and a face and a, and, and a family history that we didn't ask for. So much of what makes us who we are was already determined before we even showed up. How many of us feel the effects of our families, good or bad? How many of us wake up one day and go about your day and you realize, man, I just said something my dad said. That's weird. We are not cut off from the generations before. We are not these radical individuals that can just remake ourselves by sheer will. And Adam, our first father, was the head of the first household. This is why when, when Adam and Eve sin, God goes first to Adam. He was meant to keep the garden. And to keep doesn't just mean, you know, you, 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 know, you prune everything, you make sure everything's nice. It means to guard it, to defend it, to enforce the borders of the garden against threats like snakes, like lives. And Adam abdicates that responsibility and he allows it to enter into the garden. And when he's confronted by it as the head, not only of his family, but of all humanity, he abdicates responsibility. It was this woman you gave me. And then Eve doesn't take responsibility. She goes, well, the snake tempted me. And the blame shifting happens right there at the beginning. And this pattern continues to this very day. It might have even happened yesterday for you. So we're not the self-defining people we think we are. We're all born in the family of Adam. We bear a resemblance to Adam, and we have the same patterns that Adam has, and we have inherited a sinful nature. You know, we, we all sin in different ways, but we're all sinners. We're kind of like snowflakes, you know? Snowflakes are all different shapes and patterns, but we're all made of ice and water. So, this is the state that we find ourselves in. And we're blind to our sin in many ways, willfully so. We justify ourselves, we blame shift, we do whatever we can to avoid responsibility. And this is where death comes in. It kind of reminds us, actually, you're not okay. It shocks us. You know, many of us here have known the pain of losing a loved one, and it's shocking. It's, it's, it's alien. It doesn't feel right or natural. It's a, it's a disruptive force in our lives. Because death is spread to all men because all men sin. It is a reminder that this is not the way it should be. It shatters the illusion that everything's okay. It pulls back the blinders. But it's this recognition that things aren't okay that sets the stage for hope. This grappling with the reality of death, the finality of death, the curse of death, and the reality of, of the sinfulness of the world is meant to make us long for a solution. And this is what God provides in verses 15 to 16. The curse is the curse of death, the dominating power of sin over our lives here's a blessing. It's the gift. Paul introduces Jesus Christ as a parallel. There's one man who brings death, and God brings about another man, a second Adam, to bring life. But he's not just saying that Christ is similar to Adam. He's saying that Christ is superior to Adam. Adam sins, and he deserves condemnation. 
Christ gives himself and he gifts salvation to us. So when we're judged by God, we can point to the ledger and go, I did that, I deserve that, you're right, you got me, this is what I deserve. But when we look at salvation, there's nothing we can point to. There's no ledger of righteous deeds. It's a pure gift. So Adam brings condemnation. He brings the guilt and, and, and the, the shame that we feel before the law of God. The righteous judgment, that's what he brings upon us. But in Christ, he brings justification. That's a very important word in the book of Romans. It means it's a legal declaration that God puts on us that you are morally righteous. You're righteous. That You're in the right. Christ brings that declaration to us. We're no longer condemned, but we are forgiven, and not just forgiven, but counted as morally upright. And this is because of God's goodness. It's not owed to us. It's not, we're not entitled to it. But Christ comes in to be the second Adam, to take the curse of death upon himself, to give us the gift of salvation, to give us something we don't deserve, and to destroy something that we did deserve. God's grace not only covers one sin, but he says many sins. In verse 17, Christ gives us an abundance of grace and a free gift of righteousness. Think about those words, abundance, free gift, overflowing, grace that just envelops and, 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 and casts over all the sin in our lives. And now, if we're in Christ, what's true of him is true of us. Is Christ blameless and holy before God? Well, so are you. Is Christ perfectly righteous? So are you. Is Christ a beloved son? So are you. Is, does Christ inherit the world? So will you. Did Christ rise again? So will you. And this is God's grace. This is how God reacts to our sin. This is how God responds to our sin. With kindness and love. He sets his love upon us. You know, if you love your kid, you're supposed to do that. Right? You're kind of a bad parent if you don't. If you love an orphan, well, that's a little, that's more, because you're, you're choosing to welcome someone outside of your family that you don't have any obligation towards. You're, you're choosing to say, I'm going to make them my obligation. I'm going to bring them into my family. I'm going to set my love on them. But the way that God loves is one further. He adopts his enemies. He sets his love on people who rebel against him, who are hard-hearted towards him. While they're sinners, he sets his love on them. That's the grace of God. It's free. He looks upon us in our sin and he sets his love on us. But there's a condition. You can only access that gift by faith. People sometimes use Romans 5 to show that, well, everyone is condemned in Christ, now everyone's saved. It's universal salvation. But there's a condition. Verse 17, God's gift is, is for those who receive the abundance of grace. You have to grab onto it. You have to latch onto it by faith. You have to trust in Jesus Christ. That's the only way you can have this gift. And if you reject that gift, you're saying, Lord, just give me what I deserve. And if you latch on to the gift, you're saying, Lord, give me what I don't deserve. 
Give, give me what I have no entitlement to. Give me what I can't earn. Do for me what I can't do for myself. That's faith. A complete outward look. Not looking inward to anything in yourself. Any moral history, any resolution to turn over a new leaf. Forget all that. It's looking at Christ. Receiving that gift. And the gospel message is so radical that earlier in chapter 3, some of Paul's opponents are saying, Paul, it sounds like you're saying that you can just sin however much you want. That you, you get, that the more you sin, the more grace abounds. Is that what you're saying? And Paul goes, no, that's stupid. <laughs> right, you can look it up. That's what he basically says. But he's also saying this. But if you're tempted to think that way, maybe you're getting it. It is scandalous. It does blow apart the views that we have about what we deserve and and justice and all of these things. That's how powerful grace is. God's target demographic is sinners. If you're a sinner, that's what this whole gospel thing is for. That's exactly why Jesus came. He came for sinners. But he doesn't just save sinners. He doesn't just forgive us of our sin. He grows us up. He matures us. He glorifies us. He raises us up, like I said earlier, from the pit of sin up into glory. And that glory is what God's plan for humanity is, to be like Christ, to share in his glory. That's the third word, glory, verses 17 to 21. Paul says in verse 17 that not only are we transferred from being in Adam, acting like Adam, we're transferred into being in Christ. Now Christ is our new head. Christ is the one who we are conformed to. And when we do that, we reign in life. That's a powerful word. We reign in life. Rulership. A royal calling. We reign in life when we are in Christ. It's the opposite of sin reigning in death. So sin reigned in death through Adam, but through Christ we reign in life. This is the glory that we are looking forward to. Sin is no longer our master, and death, eternal death, final death, will no longer be the ultimate enemy. And this reign of sin one of the things that it does is it, 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 not only, it not only makes us captive to doing sinful things, but it tempts us to respond to our sin in sinful ways. Sometimes the solution to a problem is worse than the problem itself. Maybe you've experienced this. All right? Paul says that, that the law came in, God's holy and good law came into the world to increase trespass. That the law comes in, it shows us that we're sinners, and instead of repenting and asking God for mercy, we, we actually want to sin more. Imagine you saw a guy, you know, he, he's, he's outside and he, he's got a hornet problem, you know, and he goes up to the hornet's nest and he goes, I'm going to get rid of this, and he whacks it. And what happens? The hornets fly out and he gets stung, and you're kind of like, man, his solution was worse than the problem. Well, when we use the law as sinners, we're whacking the hornet's nest. The more the law condemns us, the more we rebel against it. It only makes things worse. 
Death's reign not only fuels our sin, it fuels the sinful ways we deal with our sin. And so this is what it means to reign in life. It means that we no longer fear the condemnation of law, but also our hearts are changed so that the law becomes something we desire to do. The law shows God's desire for us. And when he changes our hearts, he matches the the deepest longings of our hearts with what he commands. What we desire and what he commands become aligned. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. And this is what eternal life is. This is what life is. It's knowing Jesus Christ and obeying him. That's what Jesus says himself. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You love him, and an outflow of that love is obedience to him. Thomas Aquinas once said, Grace does not destroy, but perfects our nature. So, reigning in life is not, again, it's not becoming something less than human. It's having our humanity redeemed. Having who we are redeemed. That's the vision of glory that God has. God is reforming us to be people who obey him, who worship him, and who delight in him. He's making us creatures fit for his kingdom. And Christ is referred to as the first fruits of new creation. That's an agricultural term. The first fruits, those are the first crops that bud. And the idea is if you're a farmer and you see the first fruits, you know, man, if that's what it looks like, that's a preview of what the whole harvest will be like. So Christ is the first fruits. He's the prototype, the first new humanity. So whatever Christ is like, we will one day be like. That's the future glory we have to look to. This is why the term Christian means little Christ. If you're a Christian, you're a little Christ. We're born little Adams and we're reborn little Christs. Reborn to love God and to worship Him. But this work is not yet complete. All of us here this past week, we're kind of like, man, I think I'm, I think I'm still in Adam. Right? And, and the truth is we still have a little bit of Adam in us. The Apostle Paul calls this the old man. That even though we're freed from the mastery of sin, we're not free from the presence of sin. We still battle with that in our lives. That we're not fully conformed to Christ's image. This is a progressive thing that will happen and will be brought to completion when he returns. Adam's nature still lurks in us. So we're not always going to feel like we're reigning in life, but this is the hope of the gospel. Our performance, our growth in Christianity is not why we're saved. That because we're united to Christ, God doesn't look at us as people who are constantly missing it, messing up, abusing His grace, whatever it might be, but He looks at us through the lens of Christ. And that gives us the freedom to fail in the right direction. It gives us the freedom to sin and repent and confess and receive grace. God is slowly rehabilitating us, slowly transforming us, slowly changing us, bending us back towards our original design. And this frees us up. We don't have to pretend like we're not fighting the old man. We're all feeling that in our lives. We're all coming here with something on our hearts, something on our conscience. And that something is the old man. But one of the things Paul says is, look, don't identify with that anymore. 
It's real. You did sin, but that's not the most true thing about you. The truest thing about you is that you are in Christ. You are in Christ. Paul uses that phrase maybe more than any other phrase he uses to describe Christians. It might be tied with saints, holy ones. So when Paul looks at all the messed up people in all the different churches, he calls them either holy ones or in Christ. He's saying that that now that you're in Christ, that's how you view yourself. You have been united with Christ. And this is the essence of Christian hope. That Christ has done what we could not do for ourselves. And he promises to remake us in his image. And he will complete that work. But along the way, it's going to be ups and downs. It's going to be difficulties. It's going to be struggles. But that's okay. Because our future is secured. It gives us the space to be messy, sinful Christians. Because when that happens... We remember, I'm in Christ. That's right. It's it's not about what I've done. It's not about my moral works. This is all a gift. I just got to keep looking at Christ. Keep looking at Christ. It's a great quote that says, for every 10 looks you give to yourself, give 100 to Christ. Christ is the answer. And this, now imagine, you know, you're, you're a sinner. You've got sin in your life. You're dealing with all that stuff. Now imagine multiplying that by 100 and putting them in the same room. And imagine having a bunch of sinners doing life together and living next to each other and going to community group together and being in Bible studies together and praying together. That's going to be difficult. That's going to be messy. But the, the hope of the church, the hope of God's gathered people is still the same. The Lord Jesus Christ has washed us clean. He is doing a work in us, in this room. He is reminding us of the truest thing about us. Do you remind yourself of that? Is that the truest thing about not just you, but the way that you view the church? Do you view them? These are the saints. These are my brothers and sisters. These are people redeemed by the blood of Christ. That would change a lot of things. So if you're discouraged with your sin, grace abounds for you. If you're down about your lack of progress, grace abounds for you. Still fighting the same temptations, grace abounds for you. Why? Because Christ has already redeemed our humanity. He has already walked the path of obedience for us. And when we follow him, we know the freedom that comes with knowing our future is secure. We're no longer condemned by the law, but also our hearts are being renewed. As we follow him, we become like him. That's what discipleship is. It's that slow, painful process of going from one degree of glory to the next, bit by bit, becoming like Christ together together not alone in your room with your journal together around each other that's the beauty of the church and this is god's vision for humanity humanity dies in adam but it 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 rises and is resurrected in christ death may reign for the moment but god will one day destroy death as the final enemy because one has gone through death out the other side to a resurrected life. That's the great gift. And you can be a part of that. You can have that. You can be the man or woman God created you to be, his image bearer, his child. That is a gift that you can receive today. What's stopping you? What is stopping you? Grab onto it. 